Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am intending to cover in this audio Acts chapter 21 verses 1 through 16. Our context is this, Paul has just left the Ephesian elders at Miletus on the southwestern coast of the Anatolian landmass. He's said goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He's hugged them. He's kissed them. They've cried and everything. He's told them savage wolves are coming. He told them to work hard with their hands because it's more blessed to give than receive. And then he gets on the ship and takes off. And that's where we are here. As We're on the third journey as Paul is returning back to Jerusalem. We go to Acts 21, verse 1. After we tore ourselves away from them and set sail. After we means Luke because he's writing the book of Acts. We and the other traveling ministers there with Paul, the, the co-workers, the helpers, and Paul himself. After we tore ourselves away from them, from the Ephesian elders at Miletus, we set sail and came by a direct route to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. Now, who were the following, the the traveling companions? We, we discovered that in the previous chapter. I'm going to do this from memory. There was Sopater of Berea, there was Secundus and Aristarchus from Thessalonica. There was Trophimus and Tychicus, Trophimus being both of whom are from Asia, and more particularly Trophimus is said to be from Ephesus. There was also Gaius of Derby, and also our old reliable co-worker, Paul's reliable co-worker, Timothy. So these are the guys that were traveling with the party there. They set sail. They went by direct route to Kos. Kos is on the southeastern shore in the province of Caria in Asia Minor there. It's famous because that's where the famous Hippocrates, the doctor Hippocrates, you know, the guy that did the Hippocratic Oath that I will do no harm, which of course is being violated by so-called abortionists, so-called doctors, abortion doctors all across the world now. But he was born there, Hippocrates was. Then they travel a little bit further. The south western coast of Anatolia has just got all kinds of islands and inlets and bays. It's very confusing and complicated. And there's a big island right there at the southwest called Rhodes. I've been there before. It's a beautiful place. Nice place to go. I think Pink Floyd, the old rock band, they've got a house there in Lindos on the island of Rhodes. Rhodes is an island as well as the city. Rhodes is at the very top, the northern part of the island of Rhodes. The city is at the northern part of the island. So they, I'm sure that Luke means here that they went to the city of Rhodes, right at the northern part there, and then they crossed a little stretch of the Mediterranean Sea till they came to Patara. Oh, by the way, Rhodes is famous for the famous Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world, but that had been destroyed two centuries by earthquake, been destroyed by earthquake two centuries before Paul got there, as then I've studied Bible and John Gill point out. It was a huge, giant statue in the harbor of the city of Rhodes. Then the party went to Patara, which is on the southwestern coast of the Lycian promontory there, the province of Lycia. Here Paul changed ships, and he moved from a shore-hugging vessel to an open sea vessel, according to the NIV Study Bible, because now they're going, getting ready to head across the open sea of the Mediterranean to go straight to Tyre in Phoenicia. So we go now to verses 2-4 through four of Acts 21. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, that's the open sea ship, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, leaving it on the left, if you look at the map, that's what's left next as you head east. It's a good ways east. The big island looks like a horseshoe crab right off the coast of Syrian Antioch and off the coast of Phoenicia. 
the whole area there was called Syro Syrophoenician. Remember the Syrophoenician woman? So basically this, this whole area is, you can either call it Syria or Phoenicia. And it's the, it's the, co the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Israel took the southernmost part of that coastline up, and Phoenicia took the middle part, and Syria took the northern part of the eastern shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea. So that's why it says in verse 3, after we sighted Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre. Again, Syria and Phoenicia, they, the two regions ran together in nomenclature. It's really Phoenicia more precisely that where Tyre was. Tyre, of course, is the famous city that was noted for Phoenician trade all through the ancient world. The Phoenicians gave the world the Phoenician alphabet, and the trade went all the way out to Spain, beyond the gates of Gibraltar, the Rock of Gibraltar, off to the Spanish Atlantic coast, the African, West African coast there. So Tyre's very famous, withstood two sieges, well, withstood Nebuchadnezzar's siege in the 580s B.C., and then also Alexander the Great went after him. Alexander the Great finally succeeded in getting him. It's, like, it's a very famous city in ancient history. They went to Tyre because the ship was to unload its cargo there. It was a business ship. It was, the ship was in for business. It was not a passenger ship they were traveling on. It was a cargo ship. All right, so there at Tyre, verse 4, we found some disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, all of this so far has been travelogue. Which, by the way, indicates something. Luke was on the journey with Paul, and he knew what he was talking about. He knew the geography. He knew what was going on. This is good history. Lots of details. Now, this was not Paul's first time through Phoenicia. He and Barnabas had left Antioch to go to Jerusalem to attend the Jerusalem Council right after the first missionary journey and right before the second. We read in Acts 15:3, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, explaining in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they, and they created great joy among all the brothers. So Paul was known in that area. It took them about two days across the Mediterranean sailing to get to Tyre, leaving from Patera and, and Lycia. Now they stayed at Tyre seven days, and by the NIV study Bible's calculation, they were... They had only two weeks to go to Pentecost. Remember, Paul says, I want to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And I still don't know whether he made it or not. Hopefully my notes will tell me by the time we get there. But it had been 29 days since the Passover in Philippi that was mentioned on the return from the third journey in a previous chapter, Acts 20. So NIV study Bible counts 29 days. I let their authority stand there because I don't know. I didn't count the days myself. I'm not sure. But I assume that's basically correct. Now, we get to verse 4, and here we have more than a travelogue now. We have a theological problem, because verse 4 says, Through the Spirit they, that's the disciples at Tyre, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit. Sounds like they had a prophecy of some sort, and the prophecy was, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, let me read you three verses together that are going to set the stage for this theological controversy. If we look back in Acts chapter 20, Verse 22, we read this. Paul is speaking. He says, And now I am on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there. Well, that's the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. The NIV says, bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. All right, well, there's a problem. If Paul was bound by the Holy Spirit in verse 22 of Acts 20 to go to Jerusalem, and yet now through the Spirit, the Tyrian disciples tell them, no, don't go to Jerusalem. Does the Holy Spirit contradict himself? Well, of course not. 
that can't be the answer. Well, that's the first problem we have to have to deal with. And the second problem is, did Paul disobey the Holy Spirit? If the Holy Spirit told him to go to Jerusalem, not to go to Jerusalem, and he went to Jerusalem, was Paul a disobedient servant? I said I would read three verses. Acts 21, verse 12 says this, when, when we, Luke and the rest, heard this, both we and the local people of Caesarea begged him not to go to Jerusalem. So apparently they thought that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem in Acts 21, 12. Well, but we can say in Acts 21, 12, they weren't pleading with Paul because they were thought he was violating God's will. They were just concerned that if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be captured there, and the Holy Spirit's just giving him a heads up, and please be careful. So, so let me read you the fuller context of Acts 21, verse 12. Let me read the preceding verse, verse 11. He, that's referring to the prophet Agabus, who had come from Jerusalem. He, Agabus, came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into Gentile hands. Then, that's when, in verse 12, when we, Luke and the other people from Caesarea, when we heard this, both we and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. All right, so let me summarize the two options here as we try to analyze Paul's obedience or lack thereof. First option is this. Paul was told to go to Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit, and Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit. In favor of that option is Acts 20:22, 20, which I just read. Paul said he was bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He was bound in spirit. Well, now, this assumes, of course, that the spirit that bound Paul to go to Jerusalem was Paul's, was the Holy Spirit and not Paul's spirit. If, if it was merely Paul's spirit, then, that, then that, you cannot use that verse to say that Paul was disobeying the Holy Spirit because he was bound, Paul was bound in his spirit to go to Jerusalem, not by, bound by the Holy Spirit, so he's not disobeying the Holy Spirit. All right, well, that's, one that's, that's the first argument that Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit. And I don't agree with this argument, so I'm going to refute it as I go through. The second, still dealing with the first option that Paul disobeyed the Holy Spirit, here's another piece of evidence in favoring that position, is that the disciples at Tyre, through the Spirit, told him not to go. I just read that verse in Acts 21.4. Let me emphasize that again. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Ah, oh, that's not just a suggestion. It, doesn't, it does not sound like it sounds like. It was through the Holy Spirit, through a prophecy perhaps. So at Tyre, through the Spirit, the Tyrians told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Agabus and Caesarea in verse 12 said that there was a, a, that he would be captured by going down there. All right. Well, now we can get we can deal with Agabus because Agabus never told him not to go down there. He just said you're gonna have trouble when you go down there. That's not a problem. But the real problem is in verse 4 in Tyre when the Tyrians, through the Spirit, told Paul not to go there. Now, Ray Stedman, the famous Ray Stedman, he believes that Paul disobeyed God. And let me say right here, even if, if Paul did disobey God, that doesn't say anything about the inspiration of the Scriptures. The doctrine of the inspiration of Scriptures and the inerrancy of Scriptures refers to what Paul wrote, not what he did. So we're, that has nothing to do. The question of inerrancy has nothing to do with this little problem we're dealing with here. All right, here's Ray Stedman's argument. He says Paul didn't need another mere warning that trouble was in Jerusalem. He had already had that. He quotes Acts 20, 22 through 23, where Paul says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem bound in the Spirit. This is the RSV. Bound in the Spirit, not knowing what shall befall me there. 
So Stedman assumes that Paul was bound by the Holy Spirit, and he was told by the Holy Spirit there was going to be afflictions there. He didn't need another warning that mere trouble was ahead. So these prophecies of the Tyrians and Agabus and Caesarea, those prophecies were to tell him, uh-uh, don't go down there. Not it, So the prophecies were not a mere warning not to go down there, that there would be trouble when you go, when you go in the will of God. But no, those prophecies in Tyre and in Caesarea by Agabus, those prophecies were commands not to go down there, and Paul disobeyed those commands. Well, I say to that, well, you know, Stedman is saying, well, you know, in Acts 20, Paul was already warned about going down there. He didn't need another warning. And so in Tyre and Caesarea, those were not mere warnings, but those were prohibitions. Wait a minute. You mean prophecies can't confirm earlier prophecies for emphasis? I don't buy Stedman's argument here just to say, well, Paul didn't need another warning. Well, yes, maybe he did need another warning. Stedman also goes to the Greek and he says, the Greek is strong. Stop going up to Jerusalem. Well, that's a translator's choice there. And anybody that's messed with any language long enough to know that you better be careful about making arguments from Greek tenses or any tense because tenses are slippery. Stop going up to Jerusalem. How do you know that's strong? I, I doubt it. You know, I haven't looked at the Greek. My Greek is not strong enough to really argue this too much, but I don't think that's what it means. I think it means just like the translations say, don't go up to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, don't go up to Jerusalem. Not stop going up to Jerusalem. Paul, no, 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 no. God's telling you not to go. I don't think, I think Stedman is squeezing too much out of the Greek here. And he says, verse 5 should begin with but and not and. Verse 5 says, when our days there were over, but when our days were over, we left to continue our journey. In other words, the prophecy said, don't go, but we did go. Well, that is an extremely weak argument, because I do know enough about Greek to know that that little particle, de, de, can be translated but and 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 both ways, and who knows. And then Stephen finishes up his argument against Paul. He says, Paul's psychology made him disobey the Holy Spirit's command not to go. Why? Because of his extreme love for the Jews. God told him not to go, but he loved the Jews so much that he, through good motives and good intentions, let his emotions get the better of him and disobeyed the Holy Spirit. And to which I reply, well, he had Paul had an extreme love for the Jews. Didn't he also have an extreme love for the Holy Spirit? Stephen goes on to say that Paul had a martyr complex. Well, I say to that is, if Paul had a martyr complex, why did he successfully try to extricate himself from death so many times before on his three missionary journeys? I think Stedman's argument falls flat. I don't think Paul disobeyed the Spirit at all. Well, let's look at, now let's look at the other argument that Paul was merely told that if he went to Jerusalem there would be affliction. He was not prohibited to go by the Holy Spirit. He was just warned by the Holy Spirit of what was facing him. Let me give you some opinions on that. Here's Adam Clark. The Spirit foretold Paul's persecutions but does not appear to have forbidden his journey. In another place, Clark says that Paul would have been, quote-unquote, highly criminal to have disobeyed the Holy Spirit. The NIV Study Bible agrees with Clark and agrees with me and says that these prophets or the, and these Tyrians weren't pleading with Paul because they thought he was violating God's will. They were concerned because the Holy Spirit had revealed that he would be captured there. So that's why they were saying, don't go, don't go, you'll be captured. They weren't saying, don't go, don't go, you're violating God's commands. So, that's my take on that little theological chestnut. Again, it's not anything to split a church over or to denounce somebody for heresy. We go to Acts 21, verses 5 and 6. When our days there were over, that's entire. They stayed seven days there. We left to continue our journey. We, that's Luke and the other eight, well, let's see, oh, excuse me, other seven co-workers, left to continue our journey. 
while all of them with their wives and children, that's all of the Tyrians, with their wives and children escorted us out of the city. They went to the beach so they could get on the boat. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said goodbye to one another. That's interesting. They kneeled to pray right there in the public where everybody could see them. We said goodbye to one another. Then we boarded the ship and they returned home. And so they they coasted down the coastline, going south still, heading for Acre. We go to verse 27. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we reached Ptolemy. Ptolemaeus. Now, Ptolemaeus is the the current name at Paul's time of the 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 ancient medieval the the medieval city of Acre later on in the Christian Middle Ages was called Ptolemaeus during the the time after Alexander the Great died one of the successors of Alexander the Great the famous Ptolemy Soter the first in Egypt he had control over it he named it Ptolemaeus that's where it got its name from and that really is is I, the present-day Akko, medieval Acre and present-day Akko. It's right across the bay from Mount Carmel in Israel. If you cross the, the bay there, you get into current modern-day Lebanon, and you see the city. I've been there on a tour. They filmed the, filmed the Exodus there. Very cool-looking place, a nice-looking place, still bustling. It was one day's journey south of Tyre. They greeted the brothers, stayed with one day. Nothing really of importance that we see happened there. So then they hoppled the boat. And they head to Caesarea, which is 35 miles to the south. We go. We read in verse 8, Acts 21. The next day we, that's Paul, excuse me, that's Luke and Paul and all the other brothers from Thessalonica and Berea and Lystra and Derbe. The next day we left and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Caesarea is the famous coast city on the coast of Israel. It's where the Romans had built a port. It's still there. It's an archaeological site. It's a tourist site full of Roman statuary and a beautiful bay, ports, docks there where you can see the rocks under the water where they tried to shelter the ships from the Mediterranean Sea and create a harbor. That's where Herod Antipas stayed during the crucifixion of Jesus before he came down to Jerusalem. It's a famous place. It's where Herod Agrippa I died after giving a little speech there in the amphitheater. You can go there and see this amphitheater. It's still there. When the, the, one, the guy that actually died of um, worms coming out because the, the sun flashed off his armor and made him look like a god. And everybody said, oh, it's a god. And Herod Agrippa I was stupid enough to say, yeah, I'm a god. And he died of worms coming out of him. So Caesarea is very famous. And it's also famous because, well, also remember the Cornelia, uh, the Roman centurion Cornelius had gotten converted, he and his household and his servants there, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoken tongues, Acts chapter 10, and also Philip lived there. Now, who is this Philip? This is Philip the Evangelist, the same Philip that went up to Samaria in Acts chapter 8. I'll read this here in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the message of the good news. Philip went down to a city. This is people scattered after the persecution in Jerusalem. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds paid attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So Philip was an evangelist. He's called an evangelist in Acts 21 verse 8. He was a demon exorcist. He was, and what else did he do? Oh, he did signs and wonders, so he did miracles. He was the same Philip that converted the Ethiopian eunuch on the road, on the Gaza road down there to Egypt. And he he came back from converting that Ethiopian eunuch. He went to Azotus, one of the Philistine cities there near, uh, toward the coast. 
as he's heading of, Mediter of the Mediterranean, he's heading back up to Caesarea. And it says in Acts verse 40, Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So he was kind of a traveling evangelist at first, and then he settled down in Caesarea, and it seems like he stayed there for, this is almost 25 years, according to the NIV Study Bible. And he evangelized around Caesarea, which is kind of interesting, you know. Everybody's got their different plans and strategies and if you look at Christians, they're all, the, when they try to do the work of the Lord, they all have different ideas. There's not a there's not a, a a formula for evangelism. Also, I didn't mention this. Philip was also one of the seven, as Luke mentions in Acts 21, 8. That's one of the seven so-called deacons or servants. Remember when the apostles in Acts chapter 6, they had to solve the tension between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews. Hellenistic Jews saying, we're not getting enough of this food that was, we're keeping in common here. We, we're not getting enough food. And so they appointed Philip as one of the seven to take care of that problem. Now it says he's an evangelist. I will point out here, it does not say he had the office of an evangelist. People love to say that, offices, because we're so institutional-minded. They didn't have offices. It was a gift of the Holy Spirit, not an office. We don't call him capital E Evangelist Philip or capital M Miracle Worker Philip. It's interesting that the word evangelist here, the title is used in only two other places in the Bible, which is really extraordinary considering how important evangelism is. If this is according to the NIV Study Bible. Ephesians 4.11, and he personally gave to some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Second Timothy 4.5, but as for you, be serious about everything. Paul writes to Timothy, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We know Timothy was an elder by the laying, hand of the, laying on of the hands of the presbytery. We know he's an evangelist. We know he's an apostle, a co-worker with Paul as he, as he moved around on the missionary journey. So, so at any rate, this shows that there's all kind of gifts in the body of Christ, and we don't have to say that one gift is given to one person and he has an office in it. No, the gifts are distributed to be used as the occasion warrants. Paul was an evangelist. He was a teacher. He was an apostle. I mean, you know, the, the ministry gifts elide into one another as we go from worker to worker. We go now to verse 9 in Acts 21. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, this may be that these four daughters had been dedicated to the Lord as virgins, dedicated in a special way to serve the Lord, done by their father, Philip, this is according to the NIV Study Bible. I don't agree with that. The NIV Study Bible is just speculating. John Guild also disagrees. He says they weren't under any vow of virginity. They just hadn't gotten married yet. Now, these four daughters were prophesying. You say, oh, well, prophesying is the same as teaching, and therefore it's okay for women to teach. Well, now that is really one of my pet peeves. Prophesying is not teaching. If it was teaching, why would Paul distinguish the gift out in that verse I just read? Ephesians 4.11, and he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers is not an apposition. Those are different different ministries. Pastoring is looking after the flock. Teaching is teaching the flock. And there's a lot of other places where, well, for example, in, in Acts 14, the chapter on prophecy, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14 in the chapter about prophecy, it says prophecy must be interpreted. Are you Are we to say that teaching is to be interpreted? I don't think so. So prophecy is not teaching. But this idea is so sunk into people's minds. I had a Ph.D. In, in theology tell me that one time. And I said, well, now how can you say that? And I told, I told him just what I told you. Then why did Paul make a distinction over it? He had no answer for it. I'm sure he probably never even thought about it. And the reason I think, well, and you go back, and I, I use old commentators, 200 back in the 800, 1800s, 1900s, 
1700s, mostly in the 1800s. And they all say the same thing. Prophecy is the same thing as teaching. The Chinese Bible was translated by missionaries to China in the early 20th century, the early 1900s. And one time I was teaching over there in China and got balled up on this word because the people, I could tell the Chinese weren't understanding. They're using the Chinese version. I'm using the English version. So I stopped and I looked at the Chinese version and sure enough, they had translated prophecy as teaching. So I had to explain that the translation was wrong. And then I had to explain to them that the Greek manuscripts is what is inspired, not the English, not the Chinese translation, and on and on and on. All because of this crazy idea that prophecy is the same thing as teaching. I mean, and I say crazy, but I'm, saying, I'm telling you, people that ought to know better, theological experts, will confuse the two. So, these four divergent daughters were not teaching. If they were teaching, they'd be violating 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. I do not allow a woman to teach. And so then we would have Philip here allowing his daughters to teach, which would violate what Paul said later. Of course, Philip couldn't have read that yet, I guess. You could, I guess you could get him off the hook for that. But no, it doesn't matter. He, they weren't teaching. They were prophesying. Now, Adam Clark disagrees with me. Listen to what he says. Probably there were no more than teachers in the church. Talking about the four daughters. For we have already seen that this is a frequent meaning of the word prophecy. See, there, there's an example. Teaching is the meaning of the word prophecy? No, it is not. And this is undoubtedly one thing intended by the prophecy of Joel. Quoted in Acts 2.17. Your young man sells dream dreams and your daughter shall prophesy. Oh, your daughters will teach. No, that's not what it means. If Philip's daughters might be prophetesses, why not teachers, says Adam Clark. Well, I, this is a question. If Adam Clark were alive today, this is the first thing I would ask him. i said, well, Adam, or Mr. Clark, I would try to be deferential. Mr. Clark, have you ever read 1 Timothy 2.12? Paul makes a distinction between teachers and prophets. I've already said that. Let me back, give you a verse to back that up. 1 Corinthians 12.29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? It's obviously he's talking about different gifts. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this about Philip, that he apparently was a good father who passed his faith to his daughters. I think that's true, because all four of his daughters believed, and you can't beat having a Christian father, Christian family to influence your kids. But note that he didn't ask his daughters to do what he was doing. He was doing evangelism. His daughters were prophesying, or at least that was their main ministry, apparently. Too many parents want their kids to be carbon copies of their parents. You, can't, you cannot do that. You should not do that. Acts verse 10 Acts chapter 21, verse 10. While we were staying there, that's in Caesarea, many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Agabus was from Jerusalem. Now the NIV study Bible again says he held the office of a prophet, and that drives me crazy. No, it doesn't say he held the office of a prophet. It doesn't say that in the text here. It never says that. You don't find the word office. In fact, one time in the King James, I think it says he who desires the office of a teacher, of an elder, desires a good thing. And the office is in italics. That, I, that caught my notice one time. Why did you put the office in italics, King James Version? It's because the Greek doesn't have office. That's institutional Christians who have got to systematize everything and, and have an organizational chart and little, little bronze and black or gold and black name tags on, on one's desk and on the, on the door. So, no, that's not what it says. It just says a prophet, not an office of prophet. I mean, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 have all kinds of gifts. One of the gifts is help. So we're going to say there's an office of helps. Put it up on the door. Now, this Agabus that showed up in Caesarea, he was the same prophet who had been in Antioch 15 years earlier. You know, the study Bible says 15 years. Gil says 16 or 17 years. 
He prophesied the coming famine in Jerusalem and thus got the Jerusalem poor relief, famine relief, started as Paul and Barnabas in Antioch got it going and collected the money and carried it down to Jerusalem. We read in Acts 11, 27 through 29, In those days some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. So Agabus had been around for 15, 16, 17 years. He was well respected, I'm sure, to hang around that long. He was not just some flake who showed up in Caesarea. And while they're staying there in Caesarea, it's, uh, Luke says in verse 10, Acts 21, many days. John Gill makes the point it couldn't have been too many days because Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, as we know. I don't know how many, many days were that they stayed at Caesarea, but they stayed there long enough for people to come from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So the word must have gotten out. We go to verse 11, Acts 21. He came to us, that's Agabus, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into Gentile hands. Now, when Paul tied, he tied his own hands, not Paul's. He tied his own feet and hands with a belt, so I guess that means he had to be crouched over in a sitting-type position. He was following in the tradition of Old Testament prophets who prophesied by symbols and gestures. Let me read some examples from the Old Testament to get, so you can get a feel for this. Isaiah 20, verse 2. During that time, the Lord had spoken through Isaiah, son of Amoz, saying, Go, take off your sackcloth and remove the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. Jeremiah 13, 1-4, This is what the Lord said to me, Go and buy yourself a linen undergarment and put it on, but do not put it in water. So I bought underwear as the Lord instructed me and put it on. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time, Take the underwear that you bought and are wearing and go at once to the Euphrates and hide it in a rocky crevice. Ezekiel 4, 1, Now you son of man, take a brick and set it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Hosea 1, 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a promiscuous wife, and have children of promiscuity. For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. Jeremiah 27, 2, This is what the Lord said to me, Make chains and yoke bars for yourself, and put them on your neck. Ezekiel 12, 1-3, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you are living among a rebellious house. They have eyes to see, but do not see, and ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. Son of man, get your bags ready for exile, and go into exile in their sight during the day. You will go into exile from your place to another place while they watch. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel 5.1 Now you, son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as you would a barber's razor, and shave your head and beard. Then take a set of scales and divide the hair. Well, there you have lots and lots and lots of Old Testament examples of object lessons, prophetic object lessons, very effective. People can remember that Agabus was just following in an old tradition, an old Jewish family tradition. Now, his prophecy was actually fulfilled. Paul was bound, and Agabus, you noted, said, you will be bound and you will be delivered into Gentile hands, Agabus says in verse 11, Acts 21. That actually happened in Acts 21, verse 33, at the end of the chapter here in our next audio. Then the commander came up, that's the Roman commander, came up, took him into custody and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So he was, the Jews had to riot there. They screamed and hollered, and the, and the Roman commander 
took custody of him, so he was delivered from the Jews to the Romans, just like Agabus prophesied. Now, you will notice there's nothing in this prophecy about don't go down to Jerusalem, Paul. It's verse 4 at Tyre where the Tyrians said, through the Spirit, they told him not to go. And that's where the theological problem comes in. And as I said earlier, that through the Spirit in Tyre just means they were, it was through the Spirit that that they were told about what was happening. And then they interpreted that as the Tyrians interpreted that as saying, oh, but, but Paul, since you're going to be thrown in jail and afflicted, don't go down there. And it was just a shorthand way of saying he was, it was prophesied of him that he was going to be afflicted, not a direct command of the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now, notice that this prophecy was not unconditional, as Adam Clark said. It didn't mean that the binding would definitely happen. It was, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. Paul did go to Jerusalem, and that's what happened. Verse 12, Acts 21, we read this. When we, that's Luke and the fellow traveling companions, when we heard this, both we and the local people, the local Caesareans, begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. That would include Luke. That would include all those traveling companions, Secundus, Trophimus, Tychicus, Aristarchus, Sopater, all those guys, Luke, I've already mentioned Luke, Timothy, all those guys said, hey, don't don't go. And also Philip and his daughters probably said, don't go. And also the Caesarean brethren, the local people said, don't go. They begged him, no, 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 don't go. Now John Gill said this is a weakness on their part because Paul was obeying God and was going down there to Jerusalem. Again, that's controverted, as I say. But if it was a weakness on the people's part to try to get Paul to stay, that was a natural and understandable weakness. They loved him. They didn't want him to go. They didn't want him to get killed. They didn't want him to get thrown in jail. Acts, these, are, these are real people, folks, that we're dealing with. They're, they're not spiritual heroes. They're not marble saints. They're real people with real emotions. Acts 21, verses 13 through 14. Then Paul replied, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready, ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we stopped talking and simply said, the Lord's will be done. So they had a little bit of an uproar here, a little bit of an emotional confrontation. And finally, Paul talked to him and said, no, I'm going. You ain't going to stop me. And again, by the way, that shows where's the authority in apostolic mission? It's not in a local church. The church at Caesarea could not tell Paul what to do because Paul had his own mission team, and he was going to do what God told him to do, and the church at Caesarea couldn't stop him. And they finally quit trying. And they, and they weren't pulling authority. They were appealing on a personal basis, not a, not from a position of ecclesiastical authority. We're the boss here. We're in charge here. You ought not to go down to Jerusalem. No, that, that's not the way it worked. Now, Paul said he was his heart was breaking. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart, Caesareans? Paul did not let his personal feelings get in the way of his mission. And that's a hard thing to do, folks. Paul had emotions, too. But he was, by golly, he was going down there. He wanted to evangelize those guys in Jerusalem, as well as to deliver the, the poor offering that he had collected on the, in Macedonia earlier on the third journey. Now, notice that the Caesareans and the accompanying, peop, accompanying people there said, the Lord's will be done. So... They finally recognized it was God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. And if that's so, and if they were correct, then that would give support to my position that Paul did not break the Holy Spirit's commands in going down to Jerusalem, that it was actually the Lord's will. Of course, that's not a strong argument because they could have been wrong about that. But they at least believed that it was the Lord's will for Paul to go down there despite the opposition he was going to say. And that's a good application point here. A lot of times 
God will tell you to go somewhere where it's not pleasant. It's not, and things don't look like they're working out. And you say, "Why did I do this? Why did I must have missed God?" Not necessarily. You might have missed God, but it might be just because God wants you to go into a difficult situation. Paul mentions that he was ready to die in Jerusalem for the Lord Jesus. Now that that was not mentioned in Agabus's prophecy. The only thing that Agabus mentioned was getting arrested, bound in his hands and feet. But Paul knew it was a real possibility. Two more verses and we'll finish up Acts 21, verses 15 and 16. We'll finish up our audio, excuse me. Acts 21, 15 and 16. After these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Manasseh, a Cypriot and an early disciple with whom we were to say. Uh, a Cypriot means he was from the island of Cyprus. That's where Barnabas and Mark evangelized after they split off from Paul after the first journey. So during Paul's second journey, they were down there, and people speculate that that might be where Manasin got saved. Some people speculate he was one of the original 70. I don't know. Nobody knows. He was just a, a, an early disciple, which means he might have actually seen Jesus in the flesh. Or it could just mean he was an elderly disciple. He was old in age. But at any rate, they st and Manasin probably came up with, he lived in Jerusalem, but he probably came up from Jerusalem up to Caesarea to meet the apostles and to escort them back into Jerusalem. The NIV study Bibles said that he must be wealthy enough to accommodate a group of nine men traveling with Paul. Well, if you count the eight that were traveling with Paul from Acts 20, verse 4, and then you add Manasin as nine, that would be nine people traveling. So the NIV study Bible apparently thinks that Nason came up to Caesarea then walked back or traveled back to Jerusalem with the apostles. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll leave... Paul at Manasin's house in Jerusalem, Paul and his fellow co-workers, and we'll take up the story of what happened in Jerusalem, starting in verse 17 to the end of Acts 21. We'll do that in our next audio. I hope you listen to that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>